This is the Rock and Roll Autopsy Podcast. I'm going to zap her again. Charge up the paddles. Come on, let's go, let's go. Sorry, Doctor. Hold the compressions. Clear. Straight line. Good evening and welcome to Rock and Roll Autopsy. We are the Forensic Files on your radio dial. My name is Scott. And this is Rico. And if we got a show for you tonight, we have the phone, the phone. ringing again. Who do you think it is this time? Is that the request line? Yeah, let's find out who it is. All right, WRNRA, East of the Rockies. I'm a rock and roll star. Yeah, um... Who is on the line? I don't... Who is that? I'm a rock and roll star. Okay, you're a rock and roll star. We'll rock cool. and roll autopsy. Welcome to the show. Welcome. How can we help you tonight? I'm a rock and roll star. Oh, wait a minute. That's Kurt Cobain. That's who that is. Kurt, wait a minute. Colin I know. From, from... He's coming from the afterworld. Oh my gosh, we've made contact. Finally. I'm a rock and roll star. Yes, Kurt, we're here. Give us another sign that you're still with us. I'm a rock and roll star. Indeed you are. You're a legend, sir. A posthumous phone call? Isn't that unbelievable? I don't know what to think. Kurt, is there a song you'd like us to do an autopsy on tonight? I'm a rock and roll star. I get it, but um, is there a song you'd like us to do an autopsy on tonight? I'm a rock and roll star. Ah, that okay, I get it now. Yeah, he wants us to do Pink Floyd in the flesh, both one and two. Let's do it. Hey, Kurt, thanks for piping in from the afterlife, baby. I'm a rock and roll okay, star. Okay, we're good. See ya. Rest in peace, Broham. It's rock and roll autopsy. It's Pink Floyd in the flesh, part one and two. We'll get to it, but first, the news. Garbage you're watching. I want to watch the news. This is the news. All right. May 26, 1973, the Edgar Winter Group's rock instrumental Frankenstein, titled because it was a monster to edit, hits number one in America. I love this song. That's it's a why killer I, song. That's why I put it on here. Um, both Winters brothers are amazing, actually. Uh, but this song freaking rocks, dude. The the keyboard is just amazing. I love it, man. It's a badass tune. It's a cool kind of classic rock staple that mm-hmm. I always enjoy hearing on the radio. I and had no idea it actually hit number one, though, until I saw this. And that like, sounds pretty shit. amazing. Could you imagine a song like that today hitting number one? Fuck no. Can you imagine? It would inst- never happen. What's the last time an instrumental was popular? Oh, God. Think about it. Let's just say it, put it in those terms. I can't even think of the last. You have to go back to like something from Surfing with the Alien by Joe Satriani, maybe? Did like Satch Boogie ever get Uh, that kind of. Not that. I mean, we're not even talking like 
number one here. We're just talking popular. Ooh, that was a good one. We're talking just popular. I can't think of the last the, the 90s at the I mean at least you might even have to go back into the 80s for that shit. I don't know, man. Crazy, uh, right? Dear listener, let us know. All right, you seriously because I have no idea. Um, May 26th, 1967, the Beatles released their landmark album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in the UK. It's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You have to sing with the British side. We hope you will enjoy oh. the show. Oh, 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 oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know the story about Hendrix playing this on stage, uh, like no. in front of them. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I guess they like shared a bill at one point, and the record like literally came out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so this says like May twenty sixth, so yeah. on May twenty seventh, <laughs> they're on a bill together, and Hendrix is like playing. He's already of them, playing it, right? And he's playing ahead of them, and he right. takes the stage, and they play Sergeant Pepper, and. You know, and the Beatles are like, it was meant as a compliment, right. you know, and I think they took it as such, but it's just crazy that he had learned it, worked it up as a cover, and they were literally playing it, you know, the Hendrix experience. That you, well, I mean, gosh, how do you feel, honestly, how do you feel about this album? Like, honestly, I know it's like their most popular one, and we, we've all heard the stories about how they recorded it, and, you know, the connection with Brian Wilson and all that jazz. Like, how do you really feel about this album? And there's a lot of, like, mythology around the album cover. Yes. And, okay. and Alistair Crowley's on the cover. and all. Here's how I feel about it. Yeah. I saw a quote where John Lennon accuses McCartney of writing the granny songs in the Beatles. You know? Yeah. And I kind of think there's a couple of those on this record, you know? When I'm 64 being an obvious one. It's it's a cute song. It's kind of a novelty song. That's and because they're... I th- you know what? I'm sorry for interrupting go you, for but... Uh, excuse me. Jesus. I, I thought about this a lot, actually. That smelled like bacon. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Um, are we that close together that you can smell my burps? No, I'm from trying, that Um. Anyway, so I thought about this. Like, even in... The album, the you know, from the wall that we're doing tonight, um, the Beatles albums, they draw upon, like, their songs are different. Like, When I'm 64, for example, um, Lovely Rita Meter Maid, like, those kind of, the British influence, you don't hear any Americans writing that type of, sorry, writing that type of cool music because we don't have the lengthy influence, musical influence that they have that they could draw on, that they can insert this stuff. And that's why they wind up doing this shit way better. That Like, we invent rock, and then fucking Great Britain winds up doing it better than we do because they have <laughs> all... I'm serious, because they have all this other influence. They, they can use what we've done, plus they have all this other influence from, like, before we were even a fucking country. Yep. That they can draw on, that they can insert into it, that makes it better. Totally, it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because that's a country that's like thousands of years of history, mm-hmm. and our country's like you know at the time they're still singing five hundred year old pub songs that before we were even around. Yeah, we're not even two hundred years old yeah. yet at this point. All right, May twenty seventh, nineteen eighty eight, the Monsters of Rock tour with a lineup of Metallica, Van Halen, Scorpions, and Dokken. That's Kicks a nice off. lineup. With a show at the Alpine Valley Music Theater in Wisconsin, metal emerged supersized, and soon after the tour released their album, what am I, oh, that's Metallica, that's cut off, 
Meta it's cut off on my phone. I was zoomed in too far. Metallica emerged, not metal, Metallica emerged supersized. <laughs> and soon after the tour released their album and Justice for All, Dawkins, strained from infighting and exhaustion, break up after the tour. So one band blows up and the other one quits. Yeah, it's an interesting footnote in rock history, this Monsters of Rock tour. I didn't attend it, but I was fans of the music. So I remember reading our local paper the next day, had a review for the, our show was at the Rubber Bowl here. Yeah. And yeah. it was like 100 degrees outside. I remember that. And so everybody was like dying of heat because it was an all-day show. And that was like the, the main thrust of the whole review was, holy hell, it was hot. How hot? I remember. I mean, I didn't go, but I remember everybody talking about how fucking hot it was right i do remember that but the main takeaway is is that metallica was not yet a headlining band and they were oh i believe they were opening this and dockin went on after which didn't do dockin any favors to like follow metallica no because metallica fucking destroyed it and dockin was like fuck that yeah and i think even van halen at this time was on tour for ou812 and that was kind of a weak album and so it was like metallica was just like blowing all these other bands who were veteran acts off the stage but it specifically impacted dockin because i think they literally followed them. wow 1988 did van halen belong in the remonsters of rock tour they yeah, were all, they were all soft hear, and synthier then. Yeah, you had to hear When It's Love, you know, a few hours after Metallica played Puppets, right? I mean, it's And like, the song's about fucking aliens and yeah. shit like that. Come on now. All right, May 27th, 1977. The Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen is released, selling about 150,000 copies in a week, despite being... A what? Night-parted on BBC's Radio 1. And declined by some record stores. So in spite of that, it still sold 150,000 copies. Can I tell you... That's pretty crazy. ...that I searched the internet on what fucking Night Parted means? What does that mean? I I don't know. That's an impressive sales figure. It's a great fucking record, man. I mean, Nevermind the the Bullocks is a great record. That's a great track. Well, you know they're re-releasing that. In in uh, the the Queen's upcoming birthday or something like that, or anniversary of her reign or something. I just heard this on the news that they're re-releasing that. That's funny. Yeah. So 150,000 copies, dude, of that. That's yeah. pretty cool, man, right? Yeah, that's... With that's... no help from radio. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. That's pretty cool. All right. That wraps up our news segment. We'll be right back. <laughs> been wearing minimalist shoes now for a little while and honestly I've tried a few different kinds and have had some varying results but the ones that I'm wearing right now are from Zero with an X that's X-E-R-O they're based out of Denver Colorado and these shoes are absolutely amazing the style I'm wearing right now are the Prio but they have other styles depending on what kind of activity level you're doing whether it's some heavy hiking or some road work or if you just need some sandals for the beach these shoes are incredibly put together the soles come with a 5,000 mile guarantee the uppers come with a hirachi style strap Uh, so if you need to snug the uppers up a little bit closer to your feet it's very easy to do that without compromising the comfort the toe box is nice and wide to allow your toes to spread out 
the way they're intended to instead of getting squished together like typical shoes do and it doesn't look awkward either these shoes are not only well put together but they look amazing as well they're fantastic um they're honestly one of the most comfortable pairs of shoes i've ever owned but please do not take my word for it go to the website it's zeroshoes.com that's again with an x that's x-e-r-o shoes.com forward slash go forward slash r-n-r-a affiliate that's our affiliate link do your own research again don't take my word for it look and see what they have if you like what you see and if you got yourself a pair you'd love them just as much as i do man what's up we need reviews what is that what does that mean well it's like what does that mean to us well people who listen to our podcast it would be swell um if they would go to apple podcasts and write a review or go to spotify and give us a star rating something between one and five it helps us how do we know how bad we really are if people don't tell us we need the feedback and the algorithm loves it, and that algorithm is hungry. It needs it needs fed bad. You know what else needs fed bad? Your ego needs fed bad on this. Yeah, I that's need... why we really want the reviews. Let's face it, right? Go ahead. Oh yeah, I need. Listen, I get zero positive feedback in my life. People around me despise me, so I'm counting on total strangers to say nice things. Yeah, we, I guess the point is is to make your ego like completely non-manageable so that I want to stop doing this podcast. And people might be motivated to do that if they dislike the podcast. Right. If they want to see in like an intercompany battle between creative differences and how I can't stand how giant your ego is, all all we need is for those people to start giving us reviews and feedback. And that'll happen, guys. You'll you'll get some really good social media entertainment here it would be a backwards way for them to kill a podcast they hate by saying good things about it so that my ego would rage out of control exactly and you would storm off in a huff i think we all want that right i know i do so please do us a favor and give us some feedback we are gathered here to remember rock and roll Rock was born the rambunctious son of country western and blues. In the year of our Lord, 1955, on this day, the birth of rock and roll, gifted under the world a gyrating pelvis, a throbbing beat, and a pulsating rhythm, a sound so infectious and rollicking that it would endow previously scrupulous young minds with identity individualism and purpose, thus setting forth a multi-generational pursuit of all that is loud, debaucherous, and unholy. But, sadly, like all earthly endeavors, rock too must perish. Oh, we mourn the loss of rock and roll with its ridiculously old standard bearers still on tour and charging ungodly amounts of mad jack to witness their long past the sell-by-date asses on stage 
and with its chauvinism, misogyny, and whiteness no longer aligning with modern sensibilities, and with its aging, fist-shaking fan base kicking every would-be rocker off their proverbial lawn, rock has indeed passed into the celestial void. May rock rest in peace in eternal cacophonous slumber. Amen. Thank you for that, Scott. All right, welcome back. The Autopsy Report. All right, here we go. On November 19th, 1975, Pink Floyd released The Wall. In the Flesh, question mark, is the first track. In the Flesh, part two, is the 21st track. Two songs are by, uh, like I said, Pink Floyd. Um, uh, the title is a reference to the band's 1977 In the Flesh tour, in which Roger Waters, in frustration, spat out a fan attempting to climb the fence, separating the band from the crowd. That's pretty much all I want to say about that. Uh, we'll get into more meat and potatoes of this. I mean, we're, again, this is the wall. This has been broken down so many times. This album is fascinating to me, and I can't wait to talk about these two songs. All right, we are going to take In the Flesh, part one and part two. And for the purposes of our autopsy tonight, we're just going to treat them as one long track. We've got five categories. They are... Gratuitous boomerism. Boomer. Excessive misogyny. Misogyny. Wanton whiteness. Whitey. Malignant machismo. Macho. And culture vulturism. Rico. Category one. Gratuitous boomerism. How do you score in the flesh part one and part two? It it has to be a one because we're talking about, um, you know, this whole thing. The whole root of this entire thing has to do with world world war two era stuff and the 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 vernacular that he uses in part two is totally boomer it's boomer roger waters is boomer it's boomer one it's a big one for me as well this is a big boomer track by a big boomer band and yeah you're right it paints the picture right post-war baby born wah, 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 yep. all this good mm-hmm. shit and then in the second half of the song things get a little dark but it certainly is a boomer track and a boomer song from for a sure. boomer band excessive misogyny category two rico how do you score it yeah i'm gonna give this one a i'm actually gonna go a full-on negative one on this one because yeah there's got to be careful here we're not talking about the entire album but um there is a point in the album in pink's story where you know he is misogynistic towards his wife but that's in context of the song but for our purposes these songs there's nothing misogynistic about them, and and so I am going a full-on negative one here. That's right. I'm going to agree. I don't see misogyny in the song. In part two, we get plenty of hating on other groups, right? Um, minority groups and underrepresented folks. He goes after them in the second song, but... I don't see misogyny here. No. I'm going to score it a 0-2. Category 3, Wanton Whiteness. 
Yeah. Um. On the surface, this is where one. this is where things get dicey because on the surface, you could totally put a one on this one. However, because of the satire of this song, it's actually the reverse of that. I mean. You see what I'm saying? Obviously, you know, this has been talked about a million times over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, I, man. Yeah, no, dude, I can't do it. I can't, I can't give this one a one on whiteness. I can't. It's a tough one because obviously this is within the context of a concept album. Yeah. And it's telling a story. And it is his story, though. That's the the thing. The first song. In the Flesh 1 yeah. is literally the beginning of the story in the record. Right. It is the birth of Pink. The second track, he's gone full fascist. Okay. Right. The second one. His so this rebirth. is where, yes, and this is where you could get into some serious whiteness, right? And now he's lashing out at other groups, right? He's like, are there any in the theater tonight? You know, that one in the spotlight. Don't look right to me. Get him up against the wall. That one looks and that, that one's, one's a Right? right, he's who lashing. let all this riffraff. Riffraff is a total white white term, right? Because he's the privileged one looking down on everyone right. else, right? Who isn't like him, right? And so you could see it in there, but is it is the song guilty of that, or is it just part of the narrative thread of the story? Absolutely, part of the narrative thread. That's there, right. This yeah. is in no Roger Waters is in no way even remotely condoning any of the stuff in the lyrics. It is totally sad. He's calling it out, actually. Right, exactly. So there is zero whiteness in this. Completely opposite. And I'm going to score it a zero as well. Let's move on to category four. Malignant machismo. Rico, how do you score? Again, just like the previous one, on the surface... It's super macho. He's he's a, a fascist dictator, right? There's nothing more macho than that. Right. Um, but this is coming from a super mentally damaged, fractured person, right? Who who was overcoddled by his mom, who lost his wife because he was so emotionally detached. There's nothing macho about that, in my opinion. Yeah, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's kind of weak, right? That's why I'm going to give it a negative one. There's one smoking a joint and another with spots. If I had my way, I'd have all of them shot. So you thought you might like to go to the show. I mean, ultimately, it's just great fucking writing is what it is. It's just it's fantastic. Really, really great. writing. I do have some comments on his motivation, though. I'm not feeling any any malignant machismo in this one. I'm going to score that a zero. I I would love to talk to somebody who who would score that a one. That's that's what I would. I would enjoy that conversation because there's dude. The character pink is super He's damaged, damaged man. Yeah. Super damaged. I think there's a difference between being destructively macho and being a damaged human being. Yeah. Right? Isn't there a little bit of a difference? Sure there, there is. Like like the the um the thing I read was um 
the thing you assimilate what you become obsessed with, right? In that article, you, you see you assimilate what you become obsessed with. And Pink became so obsessed with his emotional detachment and the things that caused his father his life that he became all of that. And there's nothing macho about that, right? Category 5, Culture Vulturism. Rico, how do you score in the flesh? Part 1, Part 2, Culture Vulturism. struggling with this one because um hmm. uh, do, do you know how you're gonna score this uh i haven't given it any thought oh. i'm thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> it's very scientific we are professionals do yeah please please don't try this at home without adult supervision um yeah on one hand let me see. No, man, I can't do it. They're, he's not. He's he's the only thing you could possibly accuse him of is vulturing Nazism in order to make his point. But that's not even really vulturing uh, Nazism. I don't even know you, if that's culture. You can't. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's not. I mean, I'm yeah. just. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm making the right scientific decision here. Right. I had to give it a zero, dude. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a zero as well. Yeah. I just I just don't see it. I'm looking for it and I just I just That's don't what I'm see saying. It. I'm looking for it. I can't see I it. I think either. when vulturism is there it's evident. Yeah. I don't think you have to look hard if you're looking hard if for it, it's probably for it, not, it's there. not there. Yeah. And yeah. so I don't see it. Um I don't really want to break down the wall. For one thing, it's been done a million times. A thousand times. million times. We've reached the end of our autopsy. Typically, we tally them up right here, but I want to give you the opportunity for any closing thoughts on In the Flesh 1 and 2. So, the thing that I wanted to ask you is about Roger Waters' motivation in making this album. I, have, I haven't seen anybody discuss this what his real motivation was. So, well, do you have an answer? I I have a theory. Well, let's I don't have Okay, here can I tell you what I know about yeah. why Pink Floyd made the wall in 7980? Oh, yeah, go ahead. He had two concepts. Roger Waters was the prime um I guess visionary in Pink Floyd, and he had two concepts that he presented to the band after the Animals tour. And one was for the wall and the other was for what would ultimately become a solo record of his i think his first solo record the pros and cons of hitchhiking so he presented both concepts to the band and the band thought that the wall concept sounded more interesting so they went that direction and it was simply a matter of he had two ideas in the hopper and let the band pick which one they wanted to do, and that's what they uh, did. I, maybe, maybe, maybe saying motivation is maybe not the right way. I, I, maybe what I'm what I'm saying is is what he was trying to say with the album. Maybe that's what I'm. Maybe I guess what I'm getting at. So let me let honestly. Me, he's probably trying to say too much. I mean, the record seems to have a lot of threads going at the same time, and I think people who try to coalesce some kind of single narrative out of it are probably yeah. just chasing cars. I, I don't... I, I the, more, the more I thought about this, the more I thought about this, the, 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 the less I agree with what he was trying to say. Let me tell you where I'm going with this, and I'm going to try and communicate this the right way. So... The, the documented 
motivation for doing this is what during the in the flesh tour a, a, a rabid quote unquote rabid fan attempts to climb the fence and he spits in the guy's face he had become so emotionally detached that he had become this um, indignant godlike figure that all of the fans had created right by turning their concerts into Nuremberg rallies is is how he put it right so he creates the wall to try and explain himself because he has trouble reconciling what he did and what caused him to do it right so he makes Meaning this, what spitting on the fan yeah yeah it's that one incident where he hocked a loogie on a fan yeah and that was a big have di- you ever spit on anybody um let me think about that no, have you? I don't want to admit it. You do you have, right? Yeah, I'm so ashamed. Of really? It. Like deeply ashamed of it. It haunts me. It's one of those moments in my life that I think about and it just haunts was me. Was it like full on fists or what? Oh no, I mean I literally it was in school, I was like sixth grade, sixth, seventh grade, and oh, I does that count it. though? Like it, it does because I know the motivation behind it. Dang it. Yeah. Bad. He boy. was he was like we had, you know, when we were young, I don't know if things are still the same way now, but, you know, you had the nerds, the jocks, the burnouts, all that stuff. Yeah. There was a kid in our school who was the biggest nerd. No one talked to him. He was a complete and total outcast. And I was on the fringe. I was, like, in danger of slipping into the nerd group and becoming him. And I was fearful of that. You know what I mean? Because I was, like, barely hanging on to some mid-level popularity <laughs> You know, so I was fearful of that. And I had a group of like semi cool friends that I hung out with and the nerdiest kids started like kind of being around our group. Right. And I was like, oh, I can't have the stink of this kid on me. If this kid starts hanging out with us, we're doomed. We will automatically by association become as nerdy as him. And so we got into it one day, he and I, and it was about to go to blows and I just hocked one on him. And you know what he did? He spit one right back at me <laughs> in the face. I took, and it just it just hit me in the eye and the nose <laughs> and my mouth, and he just hocked the biggest. And you know what? I deserved it. You yeah. know? But I think back on that now as an adult, <clears throat> and I remember seeing him walk home by himself. He had no friends, and I feel so bad about it because that kid was picked on every single day. And I should have just let him hang out with us. Why do you care what other people think? But, you know, at that age, you're so like. You caved to peer pressure, man. You're so worried about what people think of you. You know what I mean? That's so true, When I saw the stink of that kid coming around our group, I was like, we're barely hanging on to respectability here in this my group of friends, you know? And I was like, if this kid hangs out with us, we're doomed. We will be nerds. We will be outcasts. And he and I got into a fight. I spit on him, and to his credit, he spit right back at me. Good for him, but I've always felt terrible about it. Haunted me my whole life. Interesting. Yep. Shame on you, bad boy. I never wrote the wall, though. I never took that energy and turned it into anything creative. I just, I just basically internalized guilt my entire life. Damn it. So Roger Waters made it into a record, though. Yeah, man. So, so he spits in the guy's face because the fan tried to climb the fence. He, it bothers him to such a degree that he decides to make the wall to try to explain to everybody how he became this emotionally detached person who then had developed this godlike attitude towards people and spit in the guy's face just because he could do it and get away with it, right? Where do you draw the line between 
cause and effect and deflecting. What I mean is, he says, I will accept responsibility for this because this is how I became this. His dad died in the war and it affected him, obviously, enough to want to do this. So he's like, okay, I'll own some of this. Yeah, some of it's biographical. Here's my story. My dad died in the war. I put this wall around me. Uh, but, But I will only accept responsibility as long as I can put equal responsibility on the fans for making me like this. He even likened their concerts to Nuremberg rallies. He, it's the giant deflect. He's like, I will take responsibility for this as long as I can blame the fans for making me like this. Oh, and by the way, I'm also going to throw a little Sid Barrett in here in order to make Pink's character more sympathetic, in turn making me more sympathetic. So That's the, more I, the more I think about it, the more I don't like what he's trying to say because it's a giant deflect and he's accepting zero responsibility in this whole thing. I mean, I think that, like... Do you see thing, what I'm saying when I, I say I that? I see your point. I think, I think though... I really didn't want to get into a wall discussion, but I I think that it's... it's I don't think it's, like... I think it's just a, a many, many things. It's, it's part of its autobiographical obviously some you know the idea kind of the germ of it came from that basic feeling that he had on stage i think a lot of it is just creative license maybe some some of the druggy parts are callbacks to sid you know sid barrett again i just think it's like more it's it's more kind of skewing creative and creative storytelling and creative license than like and just about kind of like how to make it a, a compelling kind of, you know, listening experience and a compelling narrative, which I think it certainly is. Um, I don't think there's like an end game goal of like, well, this is the this is the takeaway that I want people to get from it, which is why I think it's kind of been debated and written about and, you know, kind of mauled over for so many decades because I don't think there is a singular meaning that anyone could take out of it. I don't think that was his motivation to have the listeners, you know, um, feel sympathy for his character and, you know, think one way of the fans. I don't know. And, and all, I mean, I think a lot of rock stars, a lot of famous people, not just, but just famous, anybody who's achieved any level of fame probably feels imprisoned by that fame to some degree and that fans or the world outside of their fame would just become monolithic in a sense like they're all just like you would just look at all of them as one block of people you want nothing to do with ultimately because they keep you from being free and living your life without um you know, freely in a way, you know, right? Elvis Presley famously couldn't go shopping without, you know, paying the mall to close down for a few hours and be there, you know, after hours, that kind of thing. You know, so I think in a sense, all these guys feel imprisoned by stardom, you know? Um, I read an article. That's that's super true. I read a thing with Neil Peart where he was like, I wish I could just take everything we did before 1980 and not even think about it anymore and never play it again because we just play it for the fans. That he doesn't even, didn't even, you know what I mean? It's like you become a prisoner of your fans' expectations, you know? And I think in a sense, yeah, they do show up and it feels like you're being worshipped by these people and you probably 
really maybe are uncomfortable with a lot of them. And Roger Waters was an intellectual and oftentimes rock fans maybe aren't, you know, they're blue collar working class people who've probably smoked a ton of dope and drank a six pack before getting in there. And they're just looking for a night away from the kids and the wife and yeah, have but a if good they- time. And Roger Waters is like, uh, he's like not that, you know what I mean? And so you already feel kind of disconnected by the crowd that you've created, right? Yeah, but that, and that's the thing. They, they created that crowd by being super talented musicians and writers. And I would think that with his, he's, he's on another level in a lot of respects. And you would, I would think that if anybody could have some perspective on, um, what, um, on, let's see, how do I want to put this? If there's anybody that could have some perspective on what it's, what it's like to really love something that you just want to be close to it, it would be him because he, that's something that he didn't, that's something that he didn't have with his father. So you feel the absence, the absence to, 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 uh, quote, uh, somebody really important that I know that an absence is a, a, a double presence. And so I would think that that this fan who climbed this fence is not an evil, hate-mongering fascist from a Nuremberg rally. This is just somebody who really, really loves what you do that just wants to be closer to the thing that makes them feel so fucking happy with what you're doing. That doesn't give them the right to do that. No, no, no. Oftentimes though, the the artists No, I'm not excusing the action. I'm just saying that with a little bit of, um, I don't think we're asking too much of Roger Waters or people on the other side of that fence to have a little bit of perspective. This is not somebody who wants to destroy you. This is somebody who paid to be there who really, really loves what but, you do. And in the flesh, though, I mean, he's looking out in the crowd and he's saying he sees the fans as riffraffs and he's the one looking at them and saying, and that one looks and that one's a He's pointing at the audience and seeing right. nothing but fault with so all is the that people the fans fault? around him. And not only that, but let's just be real here, though. I mean, any fans oftentimes don't know where the lines are, are bugging people for autographs when they should leave them the fuck alone. And let's be real, somebody charging the stage in like 1978 or whenever this show was, dude, Dimebag Daryl was shot dead on stage by a fan who got up there. We've seen, you know, just Dave Chappelle the other day, you know, some dude ran up on stage, he got clocked. But so the performer in this day and age, is in danger in this day and age should probably be getting spit on none of that kind of shit was happening in the 70s though plenty of kooks out there in the 70s come on man that was prime son of sam era man it was prime john wayne gacy ted bundy serial killer but if you're but if you're pink and you're up there saying you're a and you're a g and you're a is that the is that the fan's fault that's just him judging he's equi- the people that's right. that are he's around equally, him. He's equally judging the fans for making him that way. I just think that's a cop-out, dude, personally. It's also a really great third act to a cool story. It really is. No, and, don't get me wrong. You know, 
This album is legendary, man. I love it. I've watched the movie a thousand times. I've listened to the album a thousand times, just like everybody else. And I'll continue watching the movie, and I'll continue listening to it because it's amazing. He is on another level writing-wise. This is genius work, brilliantly done. I'm very happy with it. Uh, don't get me wrong. I just feel like, you know, he doesn't. He he. It's he kind of wants to take responsibility for who he became, but. Only to a certain degree. But let's there, be there's, honest, there's, there's conditions on it. And there's I don't like no the conditions. More, there's no more dull story than someone being enlightened and taking responsibility. We're trying to we're trying to tell a good story here, you know? So you need an anti hero. You need someone sure. fucking up and making mistakes. No one wants to listen to a story where the guy gets straight A's, takes responsibility, and makes all the right decisions. I'm turning that record off. <laughs> all right, let's get back to our autopsy. Let's do it. Let's add our let's uh add our scores up and see where we're at here. So uh, what's I have a one. I, I actually have a zero. So guess what? Congratulations, they contributed to rock and roll. Congratulations, and Roger right, Waters. Rightfully so. You may hate your audience, but we love you nonetheless. Absolutely. Thank you, ladies and germs, for listening to Rock and Roll Autopsy. Good night. Let me have that special rock and roll music. Yeah! Let me tell you, so the lyrics to real rock music is nothing more than satanic cyanide. Get it out of your house, throw it out, and burn it. It has no place in the house of the righteous. Guys, it was like a mistake. There's no mistake anymore. Follow us on Twitter at RNR Autopsy, or you can send an email to rock and roll autopsy at gmail.com. And if we run across anything good, We'll mention it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Later. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs>